Hi, and welcome to The Sustainable Century, where we explore with experts, with leaders, activists, communities of interest, mothers, fathers, and kids, how to buy, how to work, and how to invest for happier lives and a healthier planet. I'm your host, Mark D'Souza Shields. Uh, today, uh, we're talking with Alex Counts. He's a uh, He's the author of Changing the World Without Losing Your Mind, Leadership Lessons from Three Decades of Social Entrepreneurship. Um, and there are few sustainability leaders better positioned, at least I think so, to write a book with this title. Alex founded and was president of the CEO and CEO of Grameen Foundation USA. He's a Fulbright scholar. He did his work in Bangladesh and he worked with Professor Mohammed Yunus, uh, founder of Grameen Bank and co-recipient of the 2006 Nobel Peace Prize. Alex is an icon of commitment and dedication to making the world a better place, not just with his work through Grameen, but through a variety of other activities as well. He's currently a professor of public policy at the University of Maryland. Welcome, Alex. Thank you very much. Well, I want to start with my very sincere congratulations for your book. It's a very personal book, Alex. Uh, where you write about success and failure, uh, you as a person, your career, and and the organizations and institutions that you work with, it takes a certain amount of courage to write this kind of stuff. I I suspect. Oh, certainly, I, I wanted to. I, I felt it would be credible if I was trying to reveal what I learned through both my best successes and worst failures. I had to be just brutally honest with my strengths and weaknesses at different points in my career. Uh, and the things that worked out beautifully and the things that crashed and burned. So, uh, <laughs> so hopefully uh, that, that came across and I'm, I'm glad you appreciated those, that aspect. Well, I think that uh, a lot of uh, social enterprise and uh, save the world types uh, have experienced many of the similar things that you went through, and, uh, but don't write about it. And so it's great that you captured this in your book, Changing the World Without Losing Your Mind. Listen, I want to start with the young Alex Counts. That's before you got into all this. What, what did you see yourself in your, in your younger years? What, what did you see and how forward, a vision for your life? And what lessons did you draw as you became part of the Save the World crowd? Well, my, my father was a, someone who put enormous trust in my judgment from a very early age. And, and one of the things he did, he was a physician, but he put no pressure on me to be a, a doctor. His only, his only thing he expected me was to be the, the very best that I could in my chosen field. So that put it back to me. Well, then what did I care about? And it took me a while, but really by observing some other students in high school and college and in, in kind of engage in activism for improving the world, using strategies that I wouldn't, I wouldn't favor, but I bet it, it, they forced me to figure out what was my activist paradigm. And my activist paradigm, uh, ultimately I found a kind of a soulmate and mentor and guru in Muhammad Yunus. Uh, and once I got clear about that, I organized my life and learned a new language and got a Fulbright and basically then spent my 20s in an extended apprenticeship uh, with him. And, uh, but it was really, you know, early experiences of, again, trusting what I should do. I had no preformed idea coming from my family just, just to, to aspire to excellence. Um, and again, just being woken up uh, by teachers and fellow students about some of the injustices in the world. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and so what are, what are the, if you look back, what are some of the main lessons you learned about the way you went about doing that, following your passion and finding your mentors? Well, I, th- I think that one of the things I've learned is that most, you know, most, ch- it's great to have a big vision, but most change is really incremental and takes time. Uh, and, uh, and if and it, patience has not traditionally been one of my strengths, um, but I have learned that, you know, to celebrate those small victories, I, I, sometimes when I'm, one of the things I deal with in the book is my struggles, but ultimately success with building a high performing board of directors and uh, a board that will push you, but not push you around, uh, a board that will support you, but also hold you to account, uh, will, pay enough attention to realize what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong and, and, and have a calibrated approach. And that's, you know, 80% of nonprofit boards are some version of dysfunctional is my rough assessment. <laughs> you might be being kind. And, and what I, and, and if I had to say it, one of my mentors uh, uh, who worked as deputy secretary of state in the Reagan administration, whose politics were quite different from mine, but who's very thoughtful about philanthropy. And he said something to me, he said, you know, he said, if you're going to try to turn your board from a mediocre one to a great one overnight, just don't even try. Like many things that are meaningful in this mission-driven sector, a good board is built one good new member, one good meeting, even one agenda item at a time. And it's basically a three to five year project. And if you can't kind of uh, grasp that and, and it's not going to just happen, you write a memo and you tell people to adopt some so-called best practice uh, and get in line, it's just going to fail. Uh, and so that was probably one, one really uber message. Uh, and I think another, which we could get into, is that if you, if you, if you go at something so hard that you don't take care of yourself, uh, you know, it's, it's not going to, the change and your ability to drive change will never be sustainable. And you become more unhealthy, more unhappy, more cynical, um, and you might be able to keep something afloat, but it won't be, ever be great. Yeah. Hey, let's go back just a bit to some things you were saying, uh, you know, when you were starting out there and, and you were talking about boards. Now, not everybody, uh, everybody works at that level where you're, you are actually managing a board of directors. Do you think the same kinds of lessons apply for somebody who is, you know, maybe forming a team or maybe forming a small organization at the same time? I, I do. I mean, I, and one of the things this book is written, I, I think people can get value of it at various points of their career, even far away afield from the nonprofit sector. But I've kind of written it for someone who might be like a 28 version, 28 year old version of myself. who's <laughs> not quite in a leadership role in the, in the mission driven sector, but that's where they aspire to. So you need to start thinking about those things even before you're thrust in that responsibility. And you're right. Leading a, a, even a small team, there, there are many commonalities with leading and building a board. Um, and, uh, and there's some important differences. And so you can apply them to some extent, some of these lessons. Um, but also you're just trying to, you know, um, and that's why I'm a big fan of, by the way, and I, I had people do this for me, is people gave me responsibilities beyond my ability to really handle them well early, allowed me to kind of work out the kinks. And so I always, one of the things I did at Grameen Foundation is I would off, if we, if we had a rolled, put one of our mid-level staff rising stars, we had a, a kind of a board seat to, you know, to put one of our people on, whereas normally it might be me or my deputy. I put some relatively junior people on boards so they could start to kind of see or the whole social change organization 
from various perspectives early on and get a, get a really more holistic view of what it took to make an organization great. Yeah, and that, and you had that opportunity because uh, Grameen uh, was asked to participate in the boards of quite a number of uh, organizations, I suspect. Yes, and, and just to give you one example, uh, I was invited to serve on the board of, of Foncose, the uh, one, one of the Foncose organizations in Haiti. And uh, for a number of reasons, including I was a little shorter on time, I happened to have a staff member who I still believe at the time was the only person on planet Earth who spoke Bengali, Creole, English fluent. She was in her, you know, she was in her uh, probably late 20s, uh, mid late 20s, but she's smart as a whip. And I asked her to do it. And it was interesting. One of the board members at the time who once was just came with, you know, ran against Rudy Giuliani and uh, and almost, and well, didn't almost beat him, but was at least the major party candidate. Uh, her name is Ruth Messenger. You know, she said, I, I wasn't sure whether to think of this as an insult that Alex is putting forward, a, you know, a woman in her 20s. But it turned out that she not only did that job, but became a, just an incredibly strong uh, ally, uh, well, representative of us on them, but then had her own independent relationship with Foncose that continues to this day. Um, and at one point was the acting CEO of the organization that she was, I put her on the board of. Um, so again, people can rise to a challenge and especially, um, and maybe we can get into this. I, you know, one of my management mantras that I learned at, in a, at great cost of not following another one is I said that, you know, everyone knows that you should reward success, not that everyone does it, but that, um, but oftentimes it's really powerful to reward failure. Um, to give someone a big challenge as I was given. And if you fail after really being at the center of the failure, you get the lessons seared in your consciousness much more than if you're a bystander or you're just reading about it. And, uh, and so, you know, so that was where I, uh, you know, I, I kind of would put people in these roles. And even if they stumbled, if they learned the right lessons, I would put them right back out there, maybe even with more responsibility. Yeah, if you fail the right way uh, and learn from it, it's probably as or more valuable than some successes. Yeah, it's, again, something it's not that hard to say, but in, the, um, but in this whole, you know, these, these mantras about, well, holding people accountable and all these, man all these kind of management consulting uh, buzzwords, uh, you know, applied without a lot of thought, they can really you know, go counter to the vis wisdom of what you just said. Uh, and, you know, I, I've tried in not as consistency as I'd like to really, if, if people are learning the right lessons, you know, then uh, it's, it's not punishment they need, it's they need uh -huh. a, a challenge as big or bigger than the one they failed at. Well, I, I, I really agree with you, Alex. I mean, you know that I've worked in the social change business for a long, long time. And, and a lot of times I just wondered why uh, particularly large foundations uh, didn't take more risks and didn't want to push uh, the boundaries of making success harder because, you know, we're looking for systemic change these days quite, quite frantically, I suspect. I feel, and we could have made a lot more progress, I think, if people had taken this, a better view to failure, I suppose. One of the things that you wrote really, I mean, stuck out at me. I mean, it, I found it quite remarkable. And you, you wrote about identifying with or, or feeling like a, um, a very accomplished a social entrepreneur, social change agent uh, at the level of Mohammed Yunus, who told you he felt like after 40 years of incredible effort, he felt like a, a total, total failure. And how do you arrive there? Because 
if we look at your uh, we look at your career, and I have I've known you for some time, you know, looking from the outside in, well, you've you've had a successful career, and and you've built scale and important change mechanisms. I mean, how how does that how does that happen? Basically, he was demeaning his accomplishments of the past thirty or forty years, but saying that this next thing he was going to do was going to make up for it all, which unfortunately ended up being a colossal failure uh, because he was taking a big risk, right? But what struck me was this mentality to kind of is a way to, I don't know, pump the adrenaline and motivate yourself that this, this kind of diminishing your own accomplishments as a way to, I don't know, talk yourself into a push to do something bigger than you've ever done before. And it, and it kind of was an analogy that, some of my early mentors were were kind of stingy with praise. And I think that the operating model, and I had to work my way out of this mindset because I didn't agree with it ultimately, but I adopted it for my early career. Is if you if you praise an employee or God help you, a consultant or something, they're, they're gonna become complacent. They're gonna say, Okay, Alex thinks I walk on water, so I don't really have to try anymore. And and so I had to unlearn that. And I think that what I was saying about this leader is he was applying that to himself, being unpraising of his own past performance, despite all of the major accomplishments, as because that would make him complacent and not wanting to give it his all this next time. And I, I feel that that's fundamentally flawed. And I, I went now on the edge. I, I take opportunities, colleagues, um, allies, competitors, people in government, um, you know, I'll speak up when I don't agree with them, but I, I look for any opportunity to affirm and to compliment myself and the people around me as a way to, and because I don't think that demotivates you from wanting to do more good. I think it actually does the opposite. It motivates you. You see that you've done at least a few things that were good and people recognize and you want to do more. So, um, so that was really, uh, and that's a mindset that um and there's a chapter in the book about being generous um and it starts with really being generous with yourself um and then uh, realizing that that doesn't lead to complacency but it leads to a feeling of i think safety uh and, an, and a willingness to then go out and give your best again yeah well i mean, i guess in in these social change the social change and environmental challenges that we face, I mean, there seems to be no end point. So, I mean, it's not like you can say in, 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 in some business, you know, I've accomplished X, Y, and Z. It seems like there is always a new challenge and a bigger challenge. Yeah, you know, I mean, you're going you're gonna to have your setbacks if you're, unless you're playing really small, but, but, you know, savor the successes or even savor the learnings and the, the progress within the failures. Um, and uh, and be you know be gentle with yourself. I, I I tell a story in the book about a time, and I, and it, it is not chronological, and it, it I it just didn't work that way. But I even towards the end of the book, I told a case where in my early in my career I became kind of depressed. Um, I still performed pretty well, I think. Uh, you'd have to ask the people that work with me, but I think I did. But it was it was really a dark period in my life where most days of the week I just felt kind of just melancholy. And I realized when it was when a, 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 a trained professional that I was working with, and I had a number of things happen to me, including my mentor, Muhammad Yunus, was under a, some pressure in Bangladesh, a terrible cyclone and negatively affected all of his branches in southern Bangladesh. It wasn't really clear Grameen Bank was going to make it uh, or in what form. And that weighed me down. There were other issues. And I just had a professional, I just asked a professional, I said, is it normal to be kind of... Uh, 
you know, devastated by some of these things? Or am I overreacting? Am I kind of too soft or too, uh, uh, you know, not rigorous enough? He said, it's absolutely normal. And from that moment forward, I was over it, right? <laughs> I was able to be kind of just accepting of the fact that, you know, some of the things knock you for a big loop. Uh, and that's okay. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of humanity. Uh, and I think in the nonprofit, particularly the nonprofits that try to be at the absolute cutting edge of change, sometimes they forget that uh, the, the value of being gentle um, with with each other uh, and with the with the partners that you rely on, mm -hmm. people themselves, leaders especially. Well, there was some other. Uh, some other things that you wrote that struck me, and, and one was about cynicism, and you mentioned it earlier, but, uh, and, and I guess you're alluding to it now, how you move past it. And you said, you said there was no epiphany for you, but there was hundreds of incremental insights. I mean, that, that seems to be a harder way to understand that you're actually making some change. Yeah, uh, you, you know, listen, things don't, um, you know, I think any, any fundamental change you wanna make in your, you know, there are exceptions, but for the most part, you want to make a fundamental change in yourself um, or in your organization. It takes time and it's, and it's really a, a, it's a war fought with lots of small battles, you know, some of which you're going to lose. Uh, and this, this idea of, uh, of an epiphany, I tell the story once that uh, how we thought our organization in the early days had had a, a major Kind of financial crisis it turned out that most of the crisis was based on a at an error by our chief financial officer <laughs> she, she just didn't and which again she was out of the picture pretty soon after that but still it wasn't it was it was a scare because we might not have been able to recover if it was as bad as she thought it was mistakenly and mm -hmm. i told my staff um you know i'm going to turn over a new leaf in these five kind of character traits that i think you all don't really appreciate and enjoy and rightfully so and it's going to start tomorrow. And probably in four of those, uh, I was pretty much back to close to my old level within a, within a few weeks of things settling down. But it, but if you look at the long, if you look at three year time frame, five year time frame, uh, a lot of those behaviors that weren't serving the organization that well, uh, I figured out how to change them without undermining the positive things that I brought to the organization. But well, well, I, I have to ask, Alex, you're going to give us an example of one of those and then maybe we'll take a break. But give us an example. Sure. Well, I, I just, you know, I was, um, you know, I had, I had very, uh, uh, you know, very high expectations of myself and, and my team. Uh, right. I wanted to, I wanted to justify the faith that Muhammad Yunus had put in us. And, and while I've never raised my voice to, uh, uh, to a colleague in the workplace over the entirety of my career, I, I think, uh, you know, sometimes you can say a kind of a cutting kind of insult or uh, something that is just just cruel in a, in a, in a more uh, passive aggressive way uh, that was just my way of saying, you know, you're not measuring up uh, that really serve no purpose except maybe to let off steam and, and to deflate what at that time, especially in the early days, were just young idealistic people doing their best. Right, right. Yeah, I know I, I'm guilty of that one myself, Alex. Listen, we're gonna take a small break. We're gonna listen to a bit of music and we'll be back with Alex Kelly.
that made you feel better, you should write it all down and put it in a letter. That was cool. <laughs> Lose your mind. It's all about the euphoria. Yeah, welcome back. We're talking with Alex Count. He's the uh, author of the just released Changing the World Without Losing Your Mind, Leadership Lessons from Three Decades of Social Entrepreneurship. Uh, you can uh, locate Alex at, at Alex Counts, and that's Alex with an X and Counts with an S at the end on Twitter. Um, and you can look uh, for his book, both soft cover and the Kindle version uh, on Amazon. Um, Alex, we've heard a little bit from the younger you and the driven you. Tell us a little bit more about how you arrived at a place where you could write a book uh, like Changing the World Without Losing Your Mind. Well, frankly, it's, it's hard to write a book when you're actually running a, a, a medium-sized or larger organization. And so I, I needed to kind of get off the, the treadmill um, of... Uh, to do most of the writing for it. Uh, and that's how people run big organizations and crank up books, I have no idea. <laughs> but some people do, but I, it wasn't possible for me. Uh, I, um, but I, you know, I, think that, I think that one thing, so I tell a story in the book, you know, and you, you kind of, some things that become part of your success repertoire, you, you see inklings of it, but you don't necessarily grasp the full possibility at first. So I was facilitating a staff retreat in the early days of Grameen uh, Foundation. And, um, and I just I had a hunch that this would be maybe cleansing for me and useful to the staff. And, and what I did is I spent 45 minutes like in between two other sections that were quite substantive. And I basically just ran through a dozen of the worst mistakes I've made as CEO in the past 12 months. <laughs> Some of them fairly minor. But one of them, I said, you know, I said there was a grant proposal that I didn't review because I thought it didn't have much chance and I was overwhelmed and I realized we just missed a million dollar grant and if I had even spent two hours on it, we probably would have gotten it. Um, and, um, and I remember, I just didn't know how they were going to kind of, were they going to think of me in a lesser way, like our, our boss is kind of a nitwit or is, are they going to be, how will they react? I just had a gut feeling. It turned out they looked around at each other in these really intense and excited ways. Like we're seeing an amazing act of generosity for our boss to lay it out where he messed up in, in ways big and small. And, um, and it just was very freeing. It, it freed up other people to talk about how they messed up, that there was no shame about that, that if you take risks, sometimes you fall on your face and you don't need to hide it, you can talk about it, you can uh, even celebrate it in a certain way. And so I, I don't think I, it was so, I mean, and, and staff talked about that for years uh, afterwards, and I did different versions of that. And I think that one of the things that I've integrated into my approach, and it really is a core feature of the book, is for me to delve into, um, uh, you know, things that I've struggled with, uh, complete failures where I felt you know, humiliated in front of my staff or my board or my peers. Um, and then, and then when the wreckage is that when the dust clears, well, what can you take from that as a learning and, and, you know, and who's there to point a finger at you. And those are people to be a little suspicious of and who are there to help pick you up uh, and affirm you. And those are, you know, whatever else maybe flaws they might have, those are your true allies. Those are not the renters. Those are the owners of your organization right there with you. And, uh, and so we built it in as an organizational 
habit, and I, I tell this other story, and sorry to go on, but it, it's a really important point, is, is we, we started our first public health program, and the team that brought on to do it, they published a 100-page uh, report on all of the lessons we learned and the mistakes we made in our first year in Ghana. No one even asked my permission to put it out there. Something would have been very controversial in most organizations. But they just did it as a matter of course. And then when Bill Gates visited this program, he said it was one of the best he saw. And he ascribed it to our learning culture. And, and a part of learning culture is being really honest about when you mess up. Uh, and then, you know, there's no shame. There's just an opportunity to learn and get better. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people give a lot of lip service to learning from their failures or their challenges that they don't overcome. And, and so that's a good lesson to learn. Well, now that you've got to where you are, and if you were to be talking to uh, several new emerging leaders in the Save the World crowd or the uh, Change the World crowd, what would be a couple of the nuggets you might want to start them off with? Well, you know, I, I probably would say um, I would try to help them understand, and I go into the book about to get out of a, a really disempowering view of fundraising, a paradigm of fundraising that most leaders have that once if you can adopt a more empowering one you're going to raise much more money and have a lot more fun doing it um i I would would urge them to once they get some money to not just relegate volunteers to the board of directors and and to and to then you know think of the board as a necessary evil but rather as a, a big asset that can be part of a much larger volunteer um uh effort and then third to take care of yourself uh, to not let your passion for your mission come at a personal expense. Um, and, uh, and, and, and lastly, the last thing is, and you can explore these if you want, but I always think, I, I thought it, I, mean, I think hobbies are important, which is part of the self-care, but I also think it's enormously important both in your profession and out in your greater life to always be doing something that's important to you that you're a novice at. Um, <laughs> that you're at. It builds humility and curiosity, and that seeps, I think, into other parts of your life, including your work on social change. So those would be some of the main themes that are in the book and that I would advise a, you know, a 30-year-old version of myself you know, who's just kind of coming up the ranks now. Yeah. I mean, one of the words that you used and I thought was, was quite appropriate was the, the word having balance in your life. Well, yeah, and, I, and by the way, I don't, I'm not a big fan. I, on my blog, which is, uh, in addition to the other things you gave out when we came back from break, uh, I came out with a website, alexcounts.com. And on my blog, I said, I don't actually like the term work-life balance. It's not bad, but it almost, it's like, you know, work is a part of your life. So you're going to balance work with your life, but work is part of life. What is that all about? But I think that people, people, um, uh, do best when they really get think about what what are the what are the four or five six things that are really important to them at that point in their lives and what's the appropriate balance which might be different than it was ten years before or ten years after um, and to not let one or two dominate um, so for some it's their work or some it's their work and their children but you know I, I think I think people do best or at least I know I do best when you've got you know, maybe maybe as many as four or five or six things you're really invested in, um, and um, and again, I think it helps to have at least one of those be something that you are not that skilled at, that you fumble around in. Maybe it's learning a new language or a, a new instrument, or 
something like that. It, again, building in that humility and that curiosity. And, um, and, and just my one big message around this balance thing uh, or, or self-care is, um, is I, I said, don't, don't let anyone else define what balance is appropriate for you except yourself. Um, there is this, there's something about pressure in different organizational cultures that it should look a certain way. I think that's totally wrong. I, I think people, uh, uh, they need to just really make an authentic inquiry for themselves at that point in their life and then, and then live it and find an organization that lets them, you know, that, that encourages them to, to, found, you know, to follow that, whatever that balance is. Well, I, I think this is fantastic advice and, and, and if, uh, if you have a chance to read Changing the World Without Losing Your Mind, Leadership Lessons from Three Decades of Social Entrepreneurship, you'll find all sorts of pearls of wisdom and uh, experiences that were gained from a long history of trying to change the world, which uh, is an admirable task. Alex, thank you so much uh, for speaking with us today. Um, for anybody that wants to get a hold of him, uh, you can see him on Twitter at Alex Counts. Uh, or you can check out his blog at alexcounts.com. Uh, really appreciate uh, talking with you today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark D'Souza Shields. I'm the host of The Sustainable Century. And remember to check out our pods, blogs, and videos at thesustainablecentury, all one word, dot net. Or you can see us at CSR Counts on Twitter. And remember to buy, invest, and vote for a happier and healthier, more sustainable world. Thanks again.